0: And knocked on the door of a rather modest apartment building in a small town in northern Poland called Shubin. and lo and behold, we you know we met my relatives after you know thirty-five, forty years with no contact.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. Massive Soviet military forces have invaded the small, non-aligned, sovereign nation of Afghanistan. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Six, nine, eight, eight, nine. The withdrawal of American and all other foreign forces from Vietnam within a period of 60 days.
0: And I'm here to host this final programme from the German Democratic Republic for you.
1: Welcome to Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place for first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Michael Zanowski was born and raised in the UK, but his interest in the Cold War goes back generations – his grandfather, having emigrated from Poland to the United Kingdom during the Second World War, was a distinguished member of the Royal Air Force in the battle against Germany. Michael's interest in the Cold War prompted him to pursue a doctorate focused around the Sovietization of Estonia post-World War II, which he researched over a number of years. His findings indicated a wholesale imperialistic strategy that centred around language, culture and moving large numbers of Russians into Estonia. However, his findings also demonstrate a great deal of Estonian resistance to these efforts, with the local population finding ways of celebrating their local culture and heritage through covert means. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are always welcome. Plus, you get that sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Co-host Peter Ryan conducts our chat, and I am delighted to welcome Michael Zanowski to our Cold War Conversation.
2: I'd like to start out by asking you if you can... Explain what prompted your initial interest in the Cold War.
0: Yeah, well, I I guess in in many ways it was similar to a lot of kids growing up in the 80s, seeing the parades of Soviet soldiers in the the May Day parades, seeing the the celebrations of the October Revolution, um, knowing that there was a part of the continent on, on which I lived that was inaccessible. And it's always that fascination with the unknown. Um, and then, as growing up at that time, you remember you, you have flashbacks to some of the the main milestones. So um, I particularly remember Chernobyl. In uh, the uh, accident happened in in late April '86, but it wasn't until um, the middle of May '86 that we really um, found out. The rest of the world found out what was going on. So I remember watching um, a children's news program in in the UK and. And seeing how they covered the coverage of that disaster, and it was clearly a, a time of worry for everyone. But when you're a child and you know about the the dangers of nuclear war, and um, uh, seeing that disaster unfold was uh, was etched into um, uh, my memory. And then, as the the decade progressed, I, I remember vividly um, the, watching the the footage of the Berlin Wall come down, which was one of those moments where you know that that uh, that world is is suddenly going to change, and that that forbidden world, the, the Eastern Bloc, was um, was actually becoming um, was 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 breaking down and would become part of our lives. And then I think on a personal level, um, I've got a, a Polish surname Zdanowski, which is quite identifiably Polish. My grandfather came over to the UK during the Second World War as a fighter pilot. And knowing that I had po- a Polish family that I could never see during the 80s was um, was one of those things that always kind of played on my mind. And um, knowing that you've got a, a long lost family in a in a what was then a, an exotic country that um, you see glimpses of on on TV. So I think the Cold War for me worked on a, a number of um, different levels. And then. As I got older and um, became a student, uh, I, I was fascinated by history and, and then went on to study both Russian, Czech uh, at university, Czech, Russian and Czech languages, and then Russian and Soviet history and, and consequently wrote um, a doctorate about the, Estone, uh, the, the Russian speakers who um, uh, live in, in Estonia to this day. So, Michael, I,
2: I want to get into the research that you did at university with regards to Estonia and the certain elements of, of Soviet cultural imperialism. But I was wondering if you could maybe just before we jump into that, talk a little bit about that family that you had in Poland that you were aware of growing up. I know that you perhaps didn't get the chance, the opportunity to see them, but, but was there connections or was there communications between the UK branch of the family and those members who were in Poland?
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a great, great question. So, um, my grandfather came over to the UK, we think in late, uh, 39, early 40. Um, certainly he was in the UK by the, the middle to late, uh, um, uh, uh, second half of 1940. And he was, um, a young Polish fighter pilot and he consequently, uh, flew for the, the RAF, um, and uh remained in res service until his death in the early 60s and consequently we uh he was never able to go back to poland because he was seen as um uh, a threat to the polish state like many of the, the the hundreds of thousands of poles who came over to britain um in in the early 1940s as part of the war effort um mainly being polish army polish airports um so there was uh We just didn't have contact with the the Polish side of the family. Now, in the 50s, he did share letters with his mother and his, uh, my my grandfather shared um, letters and correspondence with his mother and um, other members of his family. But um, my father, for example, never grew up speaking Polish. He went to um, a boarding school in the UK and had a um, classic British education. And so consequently, those links with the family in Poland were pretty um, pretty much lost for the best part of 30, 35 years. I think my aunt went to uh, Poland in the, the mid-60s, I think 65, 66, and actually met some of the Polish family. But it was a very strange experience because she had to go from West, had to go to Berlin first and then, Get on a train in East Berlin and go to Poland. But throughout the whole of her time in Poland, and it was only a few days, she was followed around by a minder. So you think about the uh, strangeness of that experience, seeing your uh, close relatives who you've never met before, um, but have perhaps had some contacts in in the past, and then having effectively a, uh, a non family member actor's chaperone throughout the whole of that time was a a very strange um, experience and remember my aunt talking about that uh and uh so consequently we didn't have any contact with the polish family really until n- the late 90s and um i asked my aunt if we had any uh links to the um polish family and she said well all i've got really is a couple of addresses and there'd been no correspondence for about 30 years and uh consequently i, I I planned a trip to, to Poland. I was 18, 19 back then. And where I was staying in Poland was actually quite close to where one of these addresses were. So uh, I ended up um, uh, I was staying with a, another Polish family at the time. I was doing a kind of exchange um, and uh, I had the address of where the, the Zdanowski family used to live. Uh, 30 years earlier so we we knocked on the door and my polish wasn't very good back then so the the Poles who I was with the Polish family who I was uh, staying with at the time did all of the translation and they said well the the, your family doesn't live here anymore but we think they live in a a village about 10 kilometers away so um, we uh, got the uh, address the new address uh, and knocked on the door of a, a rather modest apartment building in a small town in northern Poland called Shubin. And, um, and lo and behold, we, you know, we met, um, my relatives after, um, you know, 35, 40 years of, uh, with no contact. So it was, um, it was quite interesting. And then, you know, I've remained in contact with them ever, ever since. And, um, uh, and the amazing thing is that, um, They'd, they'd also uh, at one point one of one member of the family had come to the UK in the mid '90s with an address of where they thought we were living and had tried to find us. So it kind of was it was, it was a wonderful story and um, a really nice way of, of showing that you know families there is a way of that families continue to to try and keep in contact or, or overcome that that gap of the the Cold War and, and after the, the the Berlin Wall came down and the systems changed they were able to find themselves and and that pattern actually I know was repeated quite a, quite a few times so um, uh, with uh, other people I know who I studied with and, and got to know so um, so yeah, yeah I, th- I thought that was um, worth sharing.
2: Let's talk a little bit now about you and your interest in the Cold War effectively fueling your studies at university. Now, I know that you and I have chatted in the past a little bit about the experiences that you had studying in the UK and, and some of the interesting characters who you encountered who had a bit of a Cold War feel about them. Can you talk a little bit about who perhaps some of your your tutors or some of the people around campus might have been that, that might have been uh, Prompted or or even magnified your interest in this period.
0: Yeah, so I was I was very lucky because I I studied at uh, Leeds University and um, uh, studied history there. But at Leeds there was a and still is to this day a fantastic um, Russian and Slavonic Studies department. And back in the, the mid to late nineties, when I was uh, first started learning Russian there and studying Soviet history, a lot of the tutors had. Um, effectively learnt their Russian in the military in, in the late 50s, in the mid to late 50s and early 60s and therefore these were people who had learnt Russian um, extremely well uh, and I would put their um, uh, linguistic skills as uh, among the highest of people I've ever met. I mean they they knew the language inside out and, um, and were of a much higher standard than I, I thought of some of the other uh language teachers in other uh language departments in the university and um and I think it was that the fact that they'd learnt the Russian or Czech or Bulgarian in um with them with the British military um back in the the fifties, early sixties. Um so that those guys had knocked around um the uh MGU the big Russian State University in Moscow, um they'd studied there in the fifties and sixties, they'd been around the eastern Bloc, they'd really understood the 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 nature of these societies and um, uh, and they actually brought that to the table when they came to teach you in uh, and when uh, whether it was on the history side or the the linguistic side so um, yeah I, I was very very fortunate and and it was from that that actually I became more and more engrossed by um, Soviet history and and really this uh, period of history that I, I looked at and I thought was, was most interesting were, were those um, latter years of the Soviet Union, the, the years of Glasnost, Perestroika, under Gorbachev. Um, so really 85 until uh, 91, where the whole foundations of Soviet society were starting to crumble before the regime's eyes. And, and what you see was this, um, multi-ethnic state uh, empire um, uh, crumbling under the weight of its own contradictions, and um, and it was just a great time to be studying that history ten years after it happened because the dust was uh, starting to settle on that period, and and the main actors were still around. I looked at, as part of my research mostly at the uh, Russian language press so uh, in the soviet union you had the all union press these were newspapers which many of us have um, heard of like pravda and izvestia uh, and these were published in moscow and they carried the stories from the whole of the, the soviet union they um, were available in every soviet town and city uh, and were effectively the mouthpiece of the regime. So I looked at those newspapers and how they tried to construct a, a Soviet identity, and um, particularly in, in the Baltic states, um, and how they treated the Baltic states and talked about the Baltic states. Um, but I also looked at the local um, Russian language press in Estonia itself, and from the mid 1940s onwards, the Soviets had a number of newspapers that were um, published just for the, the Russian-speaking uh, Soviet population there. So these are um, publications like Mala George Estonia, uh, which is uh, uh, the youth of Estonia, um, and uh, Sovyetskaya Estonia, so that's the Soviet Estonia. And what they did, they they carried a very different message. So they, these were much more like the, the regional uh newspapers that we have um, all over the world uh, um, and know and love and they dealt with local issues but also it's really interesting because in a a command uh, system like authoritarian system like the soviet regime um, they tried to create local identities and this was really interesting in terms of building a picture of how the Russian speakers in uh, Estonia thought of themselves? How did the Soviet migrants in Estonia think of themselves? And, and and to what extent was the regime creating the identity for them? So that's really what I looked at in terms of that, um, the, the newspaper material. Uh, I also um, spoke to a lot of people uh, over a number of years. So I, I conducted uh, interviews with uh former Soviet citizens who are now living in a, an, an independent um, Estonia. I chatted to them about their, their life uh, and how they came to Estonia, what their hopes were, their dreams, uh, and how they fitted into the the new Estonia. Uh, so it, it worked on quite a number of levels. And, and from this, I was able to build a, I, what I think was a really good picture of the uh, Russian-speaking migrants who who went to Estonia from the end of the Second World War until the collapse of the Soviet regime. And then the the secondary focus of of my study was really about how these uh, Russian speakers, who they they effectively were Russian speakers after uh, certainly 1991, um, how they started to fit into this new independent Estonia.
2: Interesting. Now, I'm curious about the individuals that would have come from Russia to Estonia, as you said, uh, from the Second World War onward. What were some of their hopes and dreams? What were the objectives that they had coming into Estonia? What were some of the preconceptions they had? And and how did it pan out based on the ones that you spoke to?
0: Yeah, so it was uh, like a lot of these... um, Issues in in history, when you start to dig down into it, It, it's a complex picture of different layers. And from 1945, hundreds of thousands of Soviet migrants uh, went to the Baltic states to start new lives. Many of them were uh, soldiers. So the Baltic states really strategically important for the uh, Soviet regime and the Warsaw Pact. Uh, And as these countries had been incorporated into the the Soviet Union relatively recently, um, the the Soviets needed to shore up those uh, territories. So you had hundreds of thousands of soldiers going into those countries um, for a small country like Estonia.
1: Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. Get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more.
0: You had at uh, any one time about hundred uh, to 150,000 Soviet uh, service people uh, and their families, so this was part of the migration. Um, you also had, particularly at the end of the Second World War, displaced people. Uh, and I should mention that Estonia at the end of the Second World War had suffered very badly. Um, a number of uh, Estonia's uh, small number of cities had been badly affected. So there's the, a city called Narva on the, the border with uh, Russia, which had been destroyed. 95% of the city flattened. Uh, the Soviets were rebuilding it. Um, equally, Tallinn had been uh, the ca- which is now the capital and was previously the capital uh, had been um, pretty badly damaged. I think around about fifty percent of Tallinn had been um, um, hit and and destroyed. And so the Soviets needed people to to rebuild Estonia. So what they did was they invited uh, and sent people from uh, across. Russia and the, the rest of the Soviet Union to, to Estonia and the Baltic states to rebuild. Um, and uh, I think another element that is is interesting, we should bear in, bear in mind, is that the Soviets during this, the Second World War had, uh, had deported uh, several tens of thousands of Estonians, native Estonians, to Siberia. Some of those Estonians came back. Some of them didn't. Some of them remained in the Soviet Union. Some of them perished. Um, And you had uh, after 1945 or during 1945, um, the emigration of tens of thousands of Estonians, native Estonians, too. So you build because they didn't want to stay in uh, the Soviet Union. They didn't want to stay in Estonia if it was going to be. Uh, taken over by the Soviets. So a lot of those Estonians moved to Sweden and other countries, including the West, uh, Britain, US, and they were escaping. And and so what you have is this really mixed picture of a uh, volatile um, landscape where the Soviets are taking over um, uh, countries that were previously independent, not viewing them as anymore as. Uh, independent countries with uh, an independent past and, and history, but starting again, bringing in a new broom, and with it come Soviet migrants. And um, alongside um, army personnel, there were um, people who would, were coming over to build factories and build industries, so technicians, engineers, Uh, And as the Soviet regime um, embedded itself within Estonia, you you know, you had people who were um, going to Estonia because Estonia was perceived as having a a higher standard of living. So you had economic migrants going from the the Soviet Union to um, to Estonia. and, And that was something that came out of some of the interviews I did because uh, with that initial wave of Soviet migrants, a lot of them were, were sent to Estonia. They didn't have a lot of choice. They were uh, soldiers or, uh, you know, family members uh, were in the, the armed forces or working in the, the, the big military industrial complex. But then in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, when it was, uh, the Soviet regime was more developed, you had economic migrants crossing the border from Russia particularly um Leningrad as it as it was then um so now St Petersburg but some of the the northern russian cities and going to uh, stay with initially and then and then live with their rel- relatives in estonia because they knew that the standard of living was was better there and it was estonia was seen as almost a window to the west in, in the soviet union
2: Yeah, and with that level of migration of people from Russia into Estonia over that period, that had to bring with it uh, uh, effectively a lot of, I don't know if cultural imperialism is the term, but certainly a lot of efforts to Sovietize Estonia uh, by way of probably a whole different series of elements of popular culture. Could you speak a little bit about that, and what your research would have found?
0: Yeah. So when the Soviets took over Estonia in in the forties, they imposed Soviet imperialism, and it, in all of its um, in all of its naked glory. So there was no all, all of that cultural diverse cultural life that the Estonians had pre-war was was gone. Um, there was the imposition of a uh, Stalinist um, ideology, orthodoxy. Um, and then if you look at some of the um, pictures of tarlin and uh, Vilnius and riga in the uh, 40s 50s you you see that you see the pictures of the the statues of stalin going up stalin lenin um, you see the soviet five-pointed star going onto buildings and uh, so in a very visible way the the soviets were were taking over on a more cultural level i mean it the, the Soviet takeover was, was absolutely profound. Um, uh, the, the civil society, which had been actually relatively strong in, in the pre-war Baltic states, was just uh, destroyed overnight. So what you found in the native populations um, was that their their lives in the public space were very different from their lives in, in the private space. So um, the Baltic states and, and the peoples of the Baltic states were able to Keep their culture going, but only just, and, and that only really uh, started to um, manifest itself publicly at the end of the, the 1980s when the, the the cracks in the regime were were um, apparent, and they had these singing revolutions. Which, if you if you don't know about, um, do Google it and, and and watch some of the um, the footage on on YouTube. But um, uh, they um, were able to. Uh, find an outlet through um, singing uh, and their some of the, the values that they'd had and, and the, the customs that they'd um, uh, put together in the 19th century. And they were able to um, uh, use this as a way of, of fighting the regime in, a, in quite a, a soft way. But before then, um, the, the Soviet Union had uh, taken over these countries pretty profoundly in all, in all aspects um, and... It's difficult to really talk about um, uh, these societies in in a sort of uh, cultural sense in the way we view culture because we we're all free um, to to go to cinema and see the films we want to watch and TV equally or read newspapers and read diverse opinions, but, but that didn't exist in the in the Soviet system. Uh, to some extent, this, the the Baltic states were sort of Seen as uh, a bit more culturally um, freer than than the centre and Moscow and the Russian um, uh, heartlands, but but actually that sort of cultural life was was very prescribed for um, really from the end of the forties till um, the uh, Glasnost and Perestroika years in in the mid to late eighties.
2: Did your research touch at all on changes to the education system that young people would have been facing, you know, going all the way from primary through to university, between a shift perhaps from pre-Second World War to post-Second World War, all the way up to the late 1980s?
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of that education um, piece, the the regime the soviet regime tried to educate everyone in in society and they had an orthodoxy and a lot of that um uh, identity and, and education was was built around the fact that the the soviet union had been the victor of the during the second world war um that uh, it had brought uh, peace and, and relative prosperity to estonia uh, I mean if you're a, a native Estonian you could see that that was manifestly untrue you knew your national past and history um but to the Russian se- speaking settlers who um, ended up in Estonia that orth- orthodoxy was was the was the um was the truth and and that was the the reality they they didn't have an alternative version to to draw upon at least not until the the late 80s when um when um, there were publications around the secret pacts of the Molotov ribbentrop pact which had effectively divided um, Eastern Europe and, and and had sealed the fate of the the Baltic states so that uh, that Soviet educational orthodoxy was was very much in, imposed, um, pretty strongly throughout the, the period. I think there was a, a really interesting piece uh, about that educational aspect uh, around the, the fact that the, the Russians themselves were the, um, and you may have heard this term before, but it, they were very much seen as the first among, among equals. All Soviet nationalities were equal, but the Russians were first among equals. And you also see that uh, quite clearly in some of the um, uh statements by some of the uh, uh Soviet leaders in in Estonia so they uh, and this was part of my research uh, I looked at some of the, the speeches uh, in the 1960s by the the, the leaders of uh, Soviet Estonia and, and and they were whilst uh ethnically Estonian themselves were very much mouthpieces for the uh, regime and and many of the the ethnic uh, Estonian leaders uh, in Soviet Estonia had actually spent their formative years in in Russia so they were very Russianized. and and in some of the statements um, you find that they talk about the fact that they want uh, inter-ethnic relations to be harmonious but at the same time they're still pushing this um, orthodoxy that the, the Russians are the the elder brothers of the Soviet Union. They're the they're, they're the sort of moral force that are uh, progressing the the country and and, and delivering uh, prosperity to everyone.
2: So I'm taking it from what you've been explaining to me. There was a lot of perhaps not overt resistance, but but certainly under the surface, a, a great deal of resistance amongst uh, a lot of cultural uh, or ethnic Estonians to what the Soviets had tried to do over the course of the post-Second World War period. And I, I think that the whole singing element that you talk a little bit about, and I will be Googling that later, that was a, a great example. Did, did you encounter any other Facets of resistance that perhaps the cultural Estonians would have brought out in order to preserve their culture and, and to resist the Soviet imperial culture.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, some of the um, anecdotal uh, evidence that I, I found as part of my research was was quite interesting. And I was I was going through my my notes today, and um, there was this really good story of um, a. Uh, a uh, a KGB, uh, a young KGB recruit who had um, been sent to Estonia to do some part, some kind of um, training session. And he'd walked into a, a, a bar in Estonia, in, in Tallinn. And uh, quite clearly he was Russian, uh, had spoken to um, the Estonian bartender who ignored him because he was speaking uh, Russian. This was in the mid sixties. Mid and he, um, And apparently that was um, not particularly unusual. The the Estonians would show resistance by um, uh, refusing to speak Russian when they felt it uh, safe to do so. Um, uh, They would um, make sure that um, the the Russians knew, um, particularly I think the Russians from um, coming from outside of Estonia, that they'd make sure that they knew they were not welcome. Uh, and it was it was like these uh, I think these minor um, uh, acts of resistance um, contributed to um, the sense that um, you know it sort of solidified Estonian identity um, uh, and um, and also co- kind of made sure that the, that the Russian speakers in, in Estonian Soviet migrants knew that they. Um, that they shared uh, this this land with um, another um, group of people who really didn't want them there. So there, there were there were elements like that which were uh, quite interesting. Um, I think in in some of these uh, uh, Soviet republics, the the the, na- the national um, uh, the nationalities like Estonians, Lithuanians, Latvians. They very much try to hang on to their um, pre-war culture and traditions, um, and they did so, um, uh, I think, very effectively uh, in in spite of this Soviet regime. So, you know, they're, they're Estonia's national religion is Lutheranism, like a lot of um, uh, uh, Northern European states, and um, Soviet uh, uh, Soviet people who went to estonia couldn't quite believe how many uh, the fact that the lutheran churches or some lutheran churches were still open in, in estonia because in the the russian heartland um for the most part clo- uh, churches had been shut or some of them destroyed or turned into museums of atheism and in estonia there was this air of freedom and it, it was it was almost as if the um Uh, the Soviet regime knew that um, they they kind of tolerated that uh, Estonian nationalism. So the Estonians actually fought against the regime in in ways like that. And then, of course, there was the whole um, uh, Samizdat press. So, um, like a lot of um, the 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 Soviet nationalities, particularly during the 70s and 80s, when the regime was starting to um, wobble a little bit, the the nationalities, the Estonians, started to um, uh, revive their own um, written culture, um, started to um, Mm self-publish and write um, Anti-Soviet, openly anti-Soviet uh, leaflets, booklets, etc., to to share, to to sort of galvanize resistance against the Soviet regime. So, um, again, that that is a whole another area of history, which in itself would be incredibly um, fascinating to to study for for quite some time. So, um, so yeah, they did they did try to galvanize themselves as a nation, and when they when they saw a chance in the in the mid to late eighties, they the, the Estonians, Latvians, and Lithuanians took it with with both hands and um, and actually inspired the independence movements in in other Soviet socialist republics such as Ukraine and and particularly the um, the Caucasus states so Armenia and Georgia and Azerbaijan.
2: And I want to ask a little bit about that because I, and I know that you're you're. Research and your thesis uh, specifically was around Estonia, but did you get a sense when you were conducting this research the extent to which the Soviets might have succeeded in imposing their culture on Estonia relative to the success with other parts of the Soviet Union? Some of the other socialist republics did, were were they more successful in some regions of the country than other?
0: Uh, very good question. So I'd I start by saying that. Um, that one of the reasons the um, Estonians managed to um, uh, keep their sense of national identity and um, were so strong in terms of their determination to, to rid um, their country of, of um, the, the Soviets was that they have they have a very well-defined uh, sense of their their own um, uh, uh, country their own nation their own Uh, ethnic identity. And and that's partly because they speak a a Finno-Ugric language. So uh, Estonians related to Finnish and more distantly to Hungarian. And the Russians are Slav speakers, which uh, um, is uh, an Indo-European group of languages. So the Russians who went to Estonia couldn't Speak Estonian. Many of them didn't bother to la- learn Estonian. Estonian um, to uh, for an Indo-European speaker, so those of us who speak English, Russian, etc., is very difficult to learn with some very difficult sounds. So they, the, the Estonians were es- es- essentially um, uh, were able to keep their own sort of sense of uh, ethnic identity, and I think that la- linguistic point helped. Whereas in in Latvia and other. Countries that the two groups, uh, so the the national, you know, the national group, the Latvians or the Ukrainians, um, uh, because Russian is much closer to Ukrainian and Latvian. So Latvian and, and Ukrainian are Indo-European languages, fairly similar in the grand scheme of things, especially Ukrainian um, to Russian. The, the, the populations mixed a lot more, and in Estonia, that that didn't really happen so much. So. Um, that, again, helped um, Estonia um, uh, keep its its own sense of um, identity. I think the other uh, element to play in Estonia is the fact that the Russians lived in, in different, uh, largely in different towns and cities to the native Estonians. So we were talking a bit earlier about this military-industrial complex. Well, Um, A lot of the Russian speakers lived and and continue to this day uh, to live in the northern towns of Estonia on the on the Baltic Sea coast. So towns, not just uh, the capital Tallinn, where the population is more mixed, very much uh, mixed. So there's lots of Russian speakers, but the majority are Estonian uh, Estonians. But they they generally live in separate parts of the city. And that wasn't the case in a lot of other Soviet cities. And then in northern Estonia, you've got uh, towns like Silemea, which was a former closed city, um, uh, Kotla, Yarva, Narva. And these cities were 90 percent Russian speaking plus. Um, so they were they were very distinct communities and, and had a local identity within uh, which was built on their um, workplace, um, their town, maybe the Estonian Soviet Socialist Republic, and then the overarching identity was the the, the Soviet Union. But um, a lot of Russian speakers and uh, Estonians just didn't mix. They they. They just didn't have opportunity to meet. So so that, again, helped um, in terms of um, – uh, I think it helped the Estonians when it came to pushing for independence.
2: So flipping this around a little bit, Michael, from the standpoint of Estonia, especially I would say more in the late 70s and in the 80s up until the, the fall of communism in the East Bloc – To what extent was Western culture infiltrating into the country? We we saw huge advances in technology, huge advances in communications. Were there any elements of Western culture that, that you picked up on when you were doing your research that might have acted as a bit of a bulwark against what the Soviets were trying to impose on the people in Estonia?
0: Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. So putting aside uh, the fact that um, the Estonians, like the Latvians and Lithuanians, had memory of living in an independent, uh, European, Western-oriented state, which was one of the main reasons why their independence movements were so strong. Um, there were re- other elements uh, of those countries that um, were uh, more, much more westernized and and. Uh, and they had much more contact with the the West than, say, the Caucasus Republics, for example. So Estonia is only, um, uh, I can't remember exactly, but it's tens of kilometres away from uh, Finland. So from the late, uh, mid to late 1960s, um, there was a regular ferry between Finland and, um, and Tallinn. And then you had Finnish um, tourists, a lot of them presumably going over to um, Tallinn to experience the Soviet Union and, and um going over there, and 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 so there was this mixing. Uh, and of course, the the, the Finns, as, as just mentioned, speak a, a language which is very similar to Estonian, so it's mutually intelli- intelligible on on some level. Uh, and, and so you had that sort of mixing, and there was a bit of a, a an idea of that. Um, Estonia was uh, had more contact. It was a bit freer. It, it um, the the native Estonians could watch Finnish TV and understand it, so they they had an idea of what was going on in the rest of the world. Um, but the Russian speakers didn't. Um, so again, that just shows you that division between the the two populations. So. Um, so that was definitely an element, and, and that lasted several several decades. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that was uh, one of the main main points there.
2: So to wrap up our discussion about the research that you conducted, and by the way, thank you, it's been absolutely fascinating. I'd be curious, from the perspective of somebody who was researching a few years after the USSR ceased to exist, and even from your own opinion to this day, to what extent does the legacy of what the Soviets did in Estonia still live on? Uh, is it pretty well dissipated or are there still elements that can be found in people's lives or how they speak or, or how, they, uh, how they might consume popular culture?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the biggest part of that is the fact that you've still got hundreds of thousands of Russian speakers in the Baltic states. And that is uh, a direct result of of Soviet imperialism. Um, And those people who live there now um, are are the generations who followed those initial settlers in the, in the, the late 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, and uh, one of the other parts of my research focused on the fact that, that actually they, those settlers, even by the, the late 80s, had developed um, um, a, a sort of separate uh, and distinct uh, Russian-speaking um, identity that w- was separate from that um, classical Soviet uh, homo-Sovieticus model, that Soviet man model that the regime had been so keen to. To create. So I think the very fact that there are hundreds of thousands of Russian speakers in the Baltic states today um, is, is evidence of that. Uh, I mean, the, the physical in, infrastructure in the, in the Baltic states. You still have huge um, uh, housing uh, developments in Tallinn and the other big cities, which are, show classical Soviet architecture. There's um, a very large housing estate in, in Tallinn uh, called Lasnamea which is um, traditionally where the, the Russian speakers have lived. And uh, the blocks are very similar to the blocks you'd see in um, certain suburbs of Moscow or, or St. Petersburg. And then moving beyond that, you get glimpses. If you look in the right places, you can see um, in particularly the Baltic, some of the Baltic capitals. You can see elements of the, the Soviet regime, the odd um, red star on top of the building, which they've left there for posterity or some of the um, uh, uh, statues um, commemorating the um, the fallen during the Second World War, which, um, and I don't, I don't know if you remember, but in, in 2007, there was a big, Controversy because there was a, a, bronze, a statue of a bronze soldier, um, which uh, as bronze Soviet uh, soldier, which stood outside of the National Library in Estonia, and and had done for for decades. And mm-hmm. in two thousand and seven, the Estonian government, um, which views the um, Soviet forces as um, uh, not liberators but as occupiers they they moved the statue to um outside of the the center of Tallinn, and it, it caused um uh, a massive international um dispute between russia and Estonia and and, and you saw um the russian reaction which was um uh, seen in a in a cyber attack on on Estonia um so again the, these elements kind of rumble on but if you look in the right places you can see elements of that um that's that Soviet culture that had tried to impose itself over over many decades.
2: Michael, we're going to move now to our rapid-fire portion of the discussion. This is always a fun one, and I know that this is one that you're going to do really well at. I'm going to ask you a series of questions in regards to your thoughts about different elements of Cold War, popular culture, personalities, and so forth. And I would love it if you'd be able to give me concise answers, the first things that pop into your mind.
0: Great, go for it.
2: Okay, can you tell me, what is your favorite Cold War-themed movie?
0: great question um i would have said uh up until about a year ago bridge of spies which i think is a really great film um with the one with tom hanks but i saw a film about uh six months ago called uh, Zimna Wojna, which is a polish film uh Zimna Wojna, which just means cold war and it was 2018 <laughs> film um uh, and it is set in uh stalinist poland so just after the second world war uh, it's a love story, but it deals with um, a lot of the aspects of, of the, the, the uh, Stalinist takeover of Poland, which was cultural orthodoxy and um, not, uh, well, fitting in with the regime. So if you haven't watched it, do watch it, Zimna Voyna, Cold War.
2: It sounds really good, and, and sort of on that movie note, I saw a very good one a couple of nights ago called Mr. Jones about a British journalist in the 30s who uncovered the famine in Ukraine. Fascinating film. That's one I would strongly recommend.
0: Great. I'll, I'll check that out. I haven't, I haven't heard of that one, but that's um, that's an area, right? Um, yeah, again, well worth um, studying.
2: What about books? Are there any particular books about the cholera that you've found especially scintillating or fascinating the past uh, decade or so?
0: Oh, there's just so many to um, uh, mention that um, uh, I will just pick a, a couple out at, at random. But um, Bridget Kendall's um, recent book around uh, the Cold War very, very good. It's, um, it's based on oral history. I know she's been a guest on on Cold War conversations, and and, and that and she threads together quite a number of those um, stories very, very well with. Um, personal uh, reflection Um, I I really liked some of the the books about uh, the KGB and and, uh, the Stasi there's this great book um, and probably still the the best book on the the KGB called uh, uh, KGB by John Barron I think it was published Mm -hmm. in 73 but it actually looked at the KGB in, in detail and deconstructed Um, their modus operandi and all of the various different uh, directorates. Um, So well worth um, uh, reading. I mean, there were just just almost uh, too many to mention. Um, I don't know if this counts as a Cold War book, but um, I really liked um, uh, Gulag by uh, Anne Applebaum. It it goes up to 1953, so I guess it's technically a, a Cold War book books like that are just absolutely, um, in-, in-, in absolutely invaluable.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've read some of Ann Applebaum's books and a uh, very good style, very, very strong research that goes into them, but, but written in such a way, I think that even a casual observer or somebody with a casual interest in the cold war can really get into them.
0: Right. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. and, I know that you and I had been comparing notes uh, not long ago as well about the East German handbook. I think you've read it; I haven't finished it yet, and you enjoyed that one too, didn't you?
0: Fantastic book! I, I just love the way it's presented. Um, and yeah, we're not on commission for for this uh, book, but it, it is a brilliant pictorial history of the East German, uh, well, East Germany, um, throughout the Cold War and. Um, there was this great uh, double page spread with pictures of um, bottles of uh, liquor. So it's, you've got your East German um, uh, cherry uh, vodka. You've got your East German mint flavored vodka and um, different um, uh, East German schnapps. And it it was just a brilliant uh, presentation of of, um, East Germany in all of its glory from um, what it was producing. Uh, So you could actually get a really good grasp of what consumers wanted in East Germany throughout the uh, regime. And, yeah, fantastic.
2: I can't wait to get into it. So, Michael, if... You could identify a Cold War theme that hasn't been touched on yet in cinema or on television. What would it be, or are there any particular themes that you feel need more exploring? I'd be fascinated to see if you could give us some insight into elements of that period of time that popular culture could really go into.
0: Yeah, so I, I think one a- area that would be really interesting is looking at the um, the Westerners who uh, smuggled um, whatever it is they were smuggling. So you, normally some kind of documentation uh, into the, the, the Soviet bloc during the um, Soviet period, but who were also taking out information, um, taking out publications, taking out the um some out the the, the self published um, uh, journals and and leaflets from um, across the Eastern Bloc from dissidents uh, and sharing it in emigrate communities in in Western Europe and the US. So, um, and I got to meet um, a couple of people who did that, and their stories were absolutely fascinating. And and if they'd have been caught, the um, the punishments would have been fairly severe and um, uh, not not great for, for their general uh, prospects so um, and I really admire that that bravery to, to really um, to stand up to the, the the Soviet regime so I think that would be really interesting and, and I, I don't in all honesty know an awful lot about it um, and it's one of those parts of Cold War history that was so fundamental to um, bringing about the demise of the Soviet Union and uh, just, just this uh, clandestine smuggling of um, films and um, uh, books, leaflets, pamphlets, um, that uh, it's, it's well worth um, uh, popular culture looking into.
2: So final question in the rapid fire. If you were to have a dinner party with Cold War personalities, who would you invite, living or dead,
0: uh, living, I think somebody like Timothy Ash, who effectively is, is the voice and authority of 1989, I think that would be um, really, really uh, interesting. Uh, I think in terms of uh, dead, um, I'm going to put my head on the uh, line here and say someone like uh, Vyacheslav uh, Molotov, who was part of um, Stalin's government for so long and actually... Um, was part of the, the Soviet regime almost from the, the beginning, certainly the, the, the mid to late 20s, uh, right until uh, his death in the early 80s. And he was um, uh, uh, an unavowed communist, believed in the system, had seen all of the Stalin years and, and then the subsequent uh, development and decline of the Soviet Union. So I think he would be pretty interesting to talk to. But then again he was um he was known as um i think iron ass so uh, he he was very um uh, austere and difficult to get on with so i'm not sure he'd be the best uh, dinner party guest but but anyway he would i'm sure have some fascinating uh, fascinating uh, perspective
2: well you you know you get a, a few shots of vodka into him he might relax a little bit but there you go you know, I have to say this has been a brilliant, brilliant discussion.
0: You're very welcome. It's been a, an absolute privilege.
1: And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Thanks again to all our financial supporters of the podcast, but a special thanks to our Politburo level patrons who are Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, and Jeffrey Jones, who are supporting us at thirty US dollars per month. Thank you. Not enjoying the ads? Well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com dot com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter. You'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com donate for more information.